Let me pray and get us sort of in the right frame of mind here. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful worship we just experienced. It fills our hearts, and now your word must speak to us. So we pray that our hearts would be ready to hear what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say. We live in difficult times, uh, wicked times in many ways, and we need to hear this. So we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Matthew 18. Um, we're going to start about verse 6 there, but, you know, I'm going to want to read something from First Peter first. We talk a lot in Christian circles about temptation, and there's quite a variety of temptations that human beings face, right? Um, and give in to. And those who love a holy God need reminders like we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Some of the least followed scriptures in modern times. Uh, When he talks about our former lusts, um, he's talking about temptations from within. And while it is a moral failure to give in to your sinful inclinations from within, there is something even worse than that that we can do, something so evil that it calls forth punishments from heaven that are described by the Lord Jesus in the harshest possible terms, and that is when we choose to be, become or lead others into temptation, when we become a temptation to other people or we try to pull them into some kind of sin. That's, the, that's taking it to another level. To be weak is one thing. To be a tempter is literally taking the role of Satan in somebody else's life. It's the essence of what it means to be an enemy of God and uh, an enemy of all goodness. I mentioned last week that sometimes Jesus' words are sort of Enigmatic, uh, that is, they require a lot of thought and reflection to really understand what he's saying, but sometimes he's in incredibly direct and so direct that people recoil at the clarity of his words and we should understand um, that kind of clarity when we see or hear about people harming children how do you feel when you hear about that somebody molesting children or hurting children I mean you get indignant right and you think the harshest possible punishment should be given to that person I, I think you think that way I do Well, it's, it's, it's a just reaction when you feel that way. And that's exactly how God feels when people bring spiritual harm to his children, his little ones. Um, whether they're little tykes or, or a grown person that's young in the faith and not mature in their faith. In this chapter, Jesus is not subtle. He's not mysterious at all. It's straight up, direct, there is, there's one thing you've got to take away from these words. So you might start drifting 20 minutes from now, so let me tell you what this is all about first, and then you can start drifting later. But here's the thing you've got, you've got to know this. You must never forget it, and I will tell you now, so it, you won't miss it later. But here it is. For all of his love and compassion, which are incredible and real, Jesus never compromised for one moment the holiness of God. He was absolutely, completely, unfailingly against 
all sin with the same intensity as his father. There was no compromise with sin in his life or ministry ever in any way. And that is not incompatible with his love. The fullest expression of love includes a hatred of evil, just like you hate it when people are evil towards children. Sin is human beings bringing moral pollution into God's universe. And God hates that. And it has to be destroyed. If God is good and loves his creation, it has to be destroyed. Death and hell are penalties for wanton moral pollution of God's good world. So that's what justice demands. And Jesus is completely in accord with this uncompromising hatred of sin that God has. So never forget that. Now you can drift. I'm going to continue though. (laughs) We serve a God who is full of love and sent his Savior to be the Savior, sent his Son to be the Savior of sinners if they will repent and turn to him. But that does not change the heinousness of sin. It actually just affirms it. And you can actually see in the sacrifice of Jesus the reality of what sin is to God because that's what sin deserves. And as you delight in God's incredible redeeming love, which we sang about this morning, always keep in mind that the price of redemption that Jesus paid actually reveals the heinousness of sin when you think about what he had to endure. So wicked deeds, immoral acts, sinful thoughts are an abomination to a holy God. So that's one reason Jesus here in Matthew 18 is so plain and so clear. So let's talk about this passage now in Matthew 18. Last week in Matthew 18, we saw how Jesus went directly at the ambition of the disciples. He was very direct with them. He he showed them how close they were to missing being in the kingdom altogether. He gave them no room, no opportunity to avoid the stark truth that they needed to be converted. They needed to humble themselves. Leaders without humility, he said, not in his kingdom. The greatest in his kingdom, he says, that the title they coveted, the greatest, he said the greatest was to be the least and to regard oneself as unimportant. The humble leader doesn't care about making a name for himself, doesn't care about his reputation, except as others see God in him. That's what they want their reputation to reflect. That's all they should care about. He doesn't need fame. He doesn't need glory. He doesn't need influence. The leader of God's kingdom is a humble and the servant of all. And if it should happen that for the kingdom's sake, God ordains that somebody become famous or influential, as does happen by God's gracious will sometimes, then that person endures it for the good of the kingdom. It's a burden to bear. But he cannot seek it for himself and remain true to his calling. That's what Jesus is teaching these guys. Humility is a necessary virtue in the disciples, in every Christian heart. It's necessary. And he doesn't stop with the humble then. He directly addresses leaders and others that encounter the humble. Verse five, Matthew 18, Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he expects his children, his humble disciples, to be received as he is received. So day in and day out, the disciples 
witnessed Jesus receiving or ministering to or loving on the absolute lowliest people in their culture. In fact, some of those lowly people were in that band of disciples. Matthew, the tax collector, bottom of the social scale there. Time after time, Jesus interrupted his schedule to see that each person that came to him, no matter how lowly, got his personal care and his personal attention. He was the perfect example of this humility, even though he was God in human flesh. So the 12 would need to emulate him as they carried on their work. They needed to have his heart towards other people. And they would gladly receive Jesus into their lives while they also have to gladly receive the lowliest of saints into their ministry. The simplest believer they should give their attention to. That's what he's trying to teach them. Jesus' words in, in Mark's gospel, Mark 9.35, were to be their watchwords. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be the last of all, the servant of all. So how do we serve other people? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. We, we do what's best for them. That's the easiest definition of love, and it's the easiest definition of service. I will do what's best for you. I'll give my whole heart to it, whatever that is. And that begins in verse five with receiving them, being open to them, regarding them as important. And that requires a very different point of view from the elites and the people with power who don't think like that. They pretend to, but they don't. To be content with service to people of small means and no influence is the very heart of Jesus and he wants that to characterize his disciples and certainly all leaders in his church and kingdom. It certainly means, it certainly means to, be, to do what's best for someone absolutely means not impeding their spiritual progress, not getting in their way, not tripping them up. So verse six, that's where we're starting today. It's just stunning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Suddenly he seems to shift from the subject of humility to moral uprightness, integrity, avoiding evil, but it's not a new subject. Humility and moral goodness are profoundly linked together. Pride delights in sin because it exalts self over God. True humility, because it ranks itself under God, sees sin the same way God sees it, as something utterly abhorrent and detestable. But nowhere is human arrogance more plainly seen. Nowhere does pride, which is the ultimate anti-God frame of mind, as we described it last week, nowhere does it manifest, manifest itself more than in leading other people into sin, to actually becoming a tempter towards other people. It's one thing to wrestle with our own flesh, we all have weaknesses to overcome, but to lure somebody else into sin is so depraved. How can you be more depraved than to seek the spiritual ruin of another person? That's an incomprehensible evil. It's truly what Satan is. So Jesus says whoever in verse six, that's how he begins. And that broadens the audience out from just his disciples or just leaders. It's a universal truth applied broadly in all times and all places. And he's talking about 
you and me. He's talking to us, whoever. We better not be this way. He's offering us the perspective of the one whom we will stand before someday and make an accounting. This is his perspective. So what does the Son of God know about people that seek to trip up other people? What does he know about their fate? Well, he doesn't describe what will actually happen to them. That might be beyond our ability to even grasp. So he does offer us this earthly, this world example of an experience, and it's ghastly. Now, you know what a millstone is? I mean, the bigger ones, which is probably what's being referred to here, was mule-drawn. It was, it's like a big tire, but it's made out of stone, you know, and it's got a th- thing through it, and the, a mule or an ox turns it, and it grinds the grain. Huge stone that rolls. They, the stones they found that were uh, large millstones were like 3,000 pounds. I mean, that's a lot of rock. Can you imagine that stone placed around a person's neck? Or a rope tied to a neck and then the other end tied to that 3,000 pound stone? And then being taken out to the deep blue sea and having the stone rolled into the water? Can you picture it? I mean, just pulled down by that massive weight, just down, down, down into the watery blackness. Jesus uses that image. He says that experience is better than what awaits those who lure other people into sin. That's what he says. Remarkably, many people consider the placing of stumbling blocks before others as one of the great joys of life. In fact, in our culture, it's kind of a ritual of youth for young people to try to lure other people into sin. And some people never grow out of that. Enticing others to sin is a genuine pleasure for some people. But should that pleasure be directed towards Christ's little ones, if that pleasure is directed towards one of his, one of those who believes in him, he says, if an attempt should be made to lure a child or a novice Christian or a weak Christian into sin, it's millstone time. You've heard of Miller time. This is different. This is millstone time. It's not good. Verse 7 even adds more weight to this horrible image of this millstone bound person just sinking away. He says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Again, absolute clarity. No riddles here. The words of the highest authority on earth, Jesus the Son of God, a woe, that is the pronouncement of a curse. That's not how you stop a horse, that's spelled differently. W-O-E is the pronouncement of a curse. Cursed is the world, why? Because of its stumbling blocks. Because of people enticing or luring or tripping up other people so that they will sin. They'll join them in sin or they'll be caused to sin. The enjoyment of sin and passing it on to others, the very essence of evil. The world stands in opposition to God. It despises true righteousness, which is, I mean, it's it's evident in a thousand ways. All you have to do is be aware of what's going on all around us. But people in the entertainment industry thrive on this very thing. The destruction of innocence, the delight in corruption, the glamorizing of sin, 
They target the innocent and they try to get them as early as possible to get that thing planted in there that pleasures have to be evil to be really enjoyable. They plant that in children. They aim at children. And it's getting, now where the cartoon shows are starting to do it more and more, very specifically aimed at children. They're, more and more they're doing that. And they boast about it. I mean, they're really proud, very proud of doing that. They're so debased that they can't find enough joy in their creativity in telling a good story. The, the pleasure is in obscenity and indecency and irreverence towards God and thumbing their nose at God to, to build that in to the entertainment world that we're all addicted to is really amazing. I mean, I love art. Art is one of life's great gifts of God. It's a pleasure. Our capacity to create is one of the glorious aspects of our being made in the image of God. He's a creator and we're creators. We're sub-creators. We can make amazing things. And then to use that gift, whether it's drama or music or humor, to teach sin and lure people into sinful thinking, to get people to affirm sin and approve sin, to use creativity to manipulate Christ's little ones, to weep in favor of sin and laugh at sin and smile at sin, that is the very essence of being satanic. So when I read verse seven, honestly, I picture Christ at the end of, a, in the, in the, at the end of the age with his angels queuing up people from Hollywood all the way to the Santa Monica Pier with millstones, just tons of them just stacked up over there. It is satanic, and I mean satanic at its core, to get someone to believe what's not true or to lure them into rebellion or sensuality or drunkenness or any kind of sin. Here's the thing, especially for you parents. Jesus says it's inevitable that every child is going to deal with this. Every, I'm using child in the term he uses it. He's holding a little child while he's saying this, and so he's talking about children too, but he's talking about those who believe in him. So that's any Christian, any, especially any young Christian, um, somebody that hasn't matured and figured all this out yet. He says it's inevitable, it's unavoidable that every child, every person is gonna be, somebody's gonna try to trip them up. And I'm, I'm, I would safely say thousands of people will try to trip them up during their life. Every child on earth and every child of God will be confronted with efforts, many efforts to make them stumble. And this world is so twisted, you literally cannot live in this world without people trying to do that to you. You cannot do it. There's no place where that happened. That doesn't happen. Now, not every person does that, but so many do that it's inevitable that children will be faced with that. So parents, you cannot protect your children from it forever. It's gonna happen. That doesn't mean don't protect them, but it means don't be thinking you can protect them. You've, you've got to train them and how to deal with this, what they're going to be facing. You have to teach them because it's inevitable. Every Christian must face stumbling blocks. But Jesus says, woe, a curse to that man through whom it comes. It shouldn't be through us. We need to weigh these words really carefully lest we find ourselves here. Too many parents carelessly invite stumbling blocks into their home through the media or take their children to stumbling block places. And you have to be really careful about that. 
And you hear some pretty amazing rationalizations. What's the real world? I'd rather expose it to them under my roof than have them learn it in the street. Well, you know what? Children actually need moral training, not immoral training. It's, it's like they're going to get enough of that because that's inevitable. It's not inevitable that you give them moral training. That you've got to labor at. Teaching them that sin is acceptable or delightful is not how to prepare them for the people that are going to come for them. Parents expose children to things that, honestly, I can't even comprehend. My wife's a kindergarten teacher, and the stuff I hear from her about what five-year-olds and four-year-olds are exposed to by their parents is painful, painful. They used to have somebody dress up like a leprechaun and run around the school and you know, have a pot of gold and all that kind of stuff and cookies and stuff. They can't do that anymore because so many children have seen these R-rated, sick, twisted, R-rated horror movies at four-year-olds um, through, with their parents that um, they're terrified of a leprechaun, <laughs> which used to be like, you know, lucky charms, right? I mean, it's just amazing. And if you say, well, I counsel people that, you know, stumble all the time, of course, and where do you get that? Where did you first get into that thing? My parents. Sometimes Christian parents. So, yeah, these are things in the real world, and the real world is darker than you know, or else you're asleep, you know. The real world is a horrible place. Jesus knows that, and that's why he says these things are inevitable. Moral corruption is not something that occasionally passes by a few people. It's endemic. It's endemic because of the fallen condition of humankind. And that makes it all the more important for the young to know that there are places that are pure and safe, and that's what your home should be, where those things aren't part of it. So even if they grow up and they stumble and people get them for a while or mess up, their memory is, you know, there was a place where that did not exist. There was a safe place, a moral home, a warm place where I was loved, and those things weren't allowed. That's how we should raise our kids. That doesn't mean they're all going to turn out perfect and they won't get caught by some of those people who desperately want them to trip. But it does mean they'll have some place to look back to or that wasn't part of it. It is no Christian mission to add stumbling blocks of the world and pass them along or invite those who scatter stumbling blocks into our homes to invite them in electronically or otherwise. We don't do that. So our hearts and our souls, our energies, our ambitions should be for righteousness and the building up of one another and not less than that, nothing less than that. Sin should be like cancer to us, you know, a feared corruption worthy only of removal by any means that works. It has to be cut away to save the life. And that's the point behind verse 8 and 9. He gets stronger. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. This is a metaphor, it's, it's a, don't take it too literally. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Can you, can you speak stronger than that? Can you say it more clearly than that? Whatever it takes. Remove it. 
There's, he leaves no doubt here as to the eternal condition of the unconverted. He says, fiery hell, eternal fire. Those are Jesus' words. It's not some crazy sawdust trail preacher out in the, the boondock somewhere. That's Jesus Christ saying that. And of course, he's speaking figuratively about millstones and figuratively about mutilation, but that makes the meaning all the more powerful. Don't endure things which will be a stumbling block. Don't settle for flirtations with evil, Paul said, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And Jesus is saying to avoid sin of any kind, even if that means drastic measures should be taken. Some of us know that certain relationships pull us down and make us stumble, and we shouldn't, you gotta say no to those relationships. Some of us know we shouldn't go certain places. Some of us know certain things shouldn't be in our homes. We need to be honest about our weaknesses and the weaknesses of those around us. Jesus doesn't seem very indulgent here, does he? Where's the love? Gosh, he's like being really strict, you know? Doesn't seem very loving. I can't think of anything more loving than telling people on a road headed for disaster that the bridge is out. That's a loving thing, even if you gotta drag them out of their car. Don't go. Telling people God is holy is not unloving because he is holy. And people need to know that. God hates sin. What, I didn't know that. Now you know, now you know. We're not playing religion here. This is a matter of eternal destinies, of the soul. And what exactly are we doing when we're flirting with wickedness and sin and feeding it to the kids and joking about it at the office or indulging it in the quietness of our own hearts? Jesus says, cut it off and throw it from you. So you owe him and you owe everyone around you a solid moral life, your life. That's what you owe them. When you are with other people, friends, families, coworkers, whoever they are, which direction are you taking them by your words and conduct and the way you, uh, what you believe and the way you handle it? Are you pulling them heavenward? Are you directing them in that direction? Or are you tearing them down, pulling them towards the abyss? Which is it? What are you doing? What do they hear you say? What do they see you do? Are they stumbling because of you? Are we models of honesty or dishonesty, of purity or impurity, of love or anger, peace or turmoil, faith or unbelief? Those are the questions to ask. My super Anglican hero, Bishop Ryle, said, (laughs) better than I can say it, so I'm gonna read him. He said, we put offenses or stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ or turn them out of the way of salvation or to disgust them with true religion. We may do it directly by persecuting, ridiculing, opposing, or dissuading them from decided, them from decided service of Christ, or we may, we may do it indirectly by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession, or by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our conduct. Whenever we do anything of the kind, it is clear from our Lord's words that we commit a great sin. And then he says, there's something very fearful in the doctrine here laid down. It ought to stir up within us great searchings of heart. It is not enough that we wish to do good in the world. Are we quite sure that we are not doing harm? We may not openly persecute Christ's servants, but are there none that we are injuring by our ways and our example? 
It's awful to think of the amount of harm that could be done by an inconsistent professor of religion. By professor, he doesn't mean an academic. He means somebody that says, says they profess to be a Christian. He gives a handle to the infidel. He supplies the worldly man with an excuse for remaining undecided. He, he checks, blocks the inquirer after salvation. He discourages the saints. He is, in short, a living sermon on behalf of the devil. It's true. He's right. He's right. It's not a time for politeness when we talk about this. That's why Jesus is being so direct. Shouldn't it be our aim, our goal, our purpose to be living sermons for God? Amen. Isn't that it? And if whenever we find something other than that in us to tear it away from us, to cast it apart, to say, not me. Help me, Lord, get rid of that from my life. Help me not to be that way. I confess it and I deal with it. When I read Dr. Ryle's words, I think about people's attitudes towards the church. The longer I live, and I've always loved the church since I became a Christian, but I love it more all the time because the Bible calls it the body of Christ and more and more I, I see how essential it is to Christ's work to be a part of a body, to uphold each other. The church, you know, the universal church is made up of all true believers. That's the very thing for which Christ died. The church of God, Paul said, Acts 20, 28, the church of God which Christ purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church. It's called his bride. It's called his house. It's called his temple, the church. It's precious to him. And does our attitude towards the church reflect his attitude towards the church? So the local assembly of believers is that place where we find love and support and people that are very imperfect. That's why I don't go. They're so imperfect. They're unworthy of me. It's the place where we can be held accountable. It's the place where we can be challenged in our Christian walk and upheld when we're staggering. But what lessons do we teach about the body of Christ in casual conversation, in the choices we make? What do, what do people take away from us about Christ's bride? What are we telling Jesus' little ones? His church, his church isn't very important. His church is not worthy of time. His church is always secondary or tertiary consideration in all of our thinking. It's the way it should be. In all of our planning, we put that kind of way down on the list of things. What are we telling them? I mean, isn't that a stumbling block? We're putting in their way. Do we even care how the little ones are doing? Do we pray for them, check on them, teach them, model godliness for them? Remember, the little ones could be children, but Jesus is expanding that, I think, to any new or immature person in the faith. How do we regard them? Well, we have more in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Some people see guardian angels here. I'm not sure the text totally bears enough weight for that doctrine, but it plainly says that they take notice and they're reporting on what's going on here with these little ones. You know, people think nobody notices when they entice little ones to sin. It's done in a corner. It's done in a hidden place. Or to set before them a bad example. That's done when nobody's around watching. They think nobody will notice or care, but all of it, every instance of it, is being reported and recorded by a, an angel and taken to God. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. The angels have their eyes on Christ's little ones. 
And God's concern is for the innocent and the innocent one led astray. And his anger burns towards those who entice little ones. That's why there's millstones down there by the pier. So don't be fooled if you, if you delight in placing stumbling blocks before other people. It's reported and recorded. And there are millstones awaiting. And at this point, Jesus tells a little story about a shepherd and his flock. And we'll wrap up with this. Now remember, he's been talking to his proud disciples, his ambitious disciples, who were debating which of them should be the highest in the kingdom. And that's not what Jesus wants his shepherds to talk about or think about. We've talked about that. They are to be shepherds of the flock, but not that way. They're to be servants, verse 1 through 4 there. So they have to care about the least, the smallest, the most endangered. So, of course, the shepherd in this story is is God. He's the one who's over all things. Yet Jesus points to the heart of God for his little ones. That's what he's trying to teach them about, and we need to be like him. So verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? That's what shepherds do. They don't go, well, I've still got my 99. They, They go, where's that one? Where did it go? Verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's not what he wants to see. So we learn that the shepherd cares. He's not satisfied with those who stay by his side. He longs for the safety of the one who's straying. He searches everywhere for the stray one. His joy is in the return of the stray one back to the flock. And Jesus is trying to tell these 12 men, you've got to have a heart like that. Far from concern about your own position or influence or titles or honors, you should be consumed with the well-being of the sheep. Not just the flock, but each precious lamb, each one that's straying. That's what he's talking about. So true godliness is, is cultivating a heart like God's. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, you know. It's having God's heart. God despises sin, but even that, not so much in itself, it's, it, he despises it because of what it means. He dis- despises sin because of what it does. He despises sin because of how it destroys people forever. People that go in its way. So our task is way beyond just avoiding sin. It's to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's the great commandment. And that means loving what God loves and hating what God hates and caring for the stray sheep and seeking their restitution, their restoration. I compared sin a little while ago to cancer, and I was thinking more about that. You know, sin is a word we say very casually. Very ca- cancer we say with fear and sorrow, don't we? But the word sin, we say it almost like it's an old friend, like it's so familiar. But that's the word that should make us recoil and terrify us and make us shudder and put our hands on our mouths and grieve us and shock us. We should talk and feel about sin the way we talk and feel about cancer. Not sin. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. But we don't. But we should. Against cancer, we use knives and deadly radiation and exercise and diet and radical changes of life, right? To win. Against sin, we say, I'll try to do better next time or, you know, that's just me and yes, I have so many little foibles. 
God is holy, and he expects us to treat sin the way we treat cancer, even more so. And that's why, that's why we look to the cross of Jesus. You know, that does two things when you look at the cross of Jesus. For one thing, you see God's holiness, because him dying there, the flogged, tortured son of God, forsaken by God, alone, despairing, you do see the cruelty of human beings there, but you see the judgment of God on sin there. He became sin for us, we read earlier in the service. But if you look again, you'll see the love of God there too, at the same time. A love so deep and so profound that there on the cross, he himself carries God's judgment against you for your sins and the many times you may have caused other people to sin, he's carried that on himself, the weight of that judgment on himself. So Jesus, who hated sin, became sin for us that we might be reconciled to God. And no matter how bad you are, you can be reconciled to God through him, but it will change you. It will change you. Let me just close, we're out of time, with Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 through 6. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's pray. Our most holy Lord, our, our great King, you are so good and holy. We are bowed low before you, too often guilty of making little of you and what you will for us. Humble us, shape our hearts to be like yours. May we be the examples you want us to be, the lights you call us to be in a dark world. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.